You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Reversing Climate Change podcast. Ooh, can you believe it? I cannot. We did it, Ross. Triple digits. Triple digits, yes. Nori is more than just a podcasting company. Check us out at nori.com. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Nori. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. It's been quite a journey. It feels like we keep turning the page and leveling up new chapters ahead. I feel like such a noob. If you go back and listen to the early episodes, this has been responsible for a lot of exploration, intellectual growth. I know. It's been a fun, fun trip. We've come so far. We can say big words like decarbonization. Yeah. Not even slur it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so how about, well, I guess I should say we're in Oakland and there are weird ambient sounds coming outside, which is, I guess, a good sign. Urban so vibes here. Urban growth. Stuff, yeah. I hear stuff being built. They probably should build some more stuff. So that's good. We are here in Oakland, as Christoph says, with Ted Nordhaus, founder and executive director of the Breakthrough Institute, author and editor of a bunch of books and a co-author of An Eco-Modernist Manifesto. So we're going to dive into that and why you're a bad person and all sorts of other things. Ted, are you ready to defend I'm, yourself? I'm ready to go, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the best place to start is what is eco-modernism? And what do you do here with the Breakthrough Institute? Well, that's a double-barreled question. I'm not sure I should answer well, it. Let's, let's make it triple-barreled. What's your connection to eco-modernism? Okay. And why is that something that you care about. Maybe we start All right, there. Great. So again, I'm I'm the founder and executive director of Breakthrough Institute, and we are the world's first eco-modernist think tank. And, you know, what is eco-modernism? You know, I think that, you know, we said that Breakthrough, we're really about focusing on technological solutions to environmental problems. Eco-modernism is really the view and we say it, uh, we wrote this thing called the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, and we say it really like in like the first paragraph, I think. But basically, that's sort of there's sort of two ideas that have really sort of animated modern environmentalism for a really long time. Um, and one is that we need to sort of shrink the human footprint uh, in order to sort of leave more room for nature, for non-human nature. And the other is that we need to sort of humanize human societies with the natural world um, in order to sort of sustain them and sustain nature. And the argument that really is kind of really at the core of the eco-modernist manifesto is that, you know, in a world of seven going on 10 billion people, you can do one of those things or the other, but you can't actually do both. You can shrink the human footprint, which means you're actually less dependent on natural systems, ecosystems, ecosystem services for human well-being. That's actually what human societies have been doing for thousands of years now, or you can try to sort of harmonize or sort of re-harmonize human societies with sort of natural flows of energy and nutrients and resources, but that actually makes you more dependent on, on nature. And we argue that the more dependent you are on nature, actually the more damage you do to it, that you know you need to reduce human dependence on nature in order to leave more room for it. And the less we need it for food, for energy, you know, the less space we use, the more space there is for everything else. So we like cities because they're really dense and we like nuclear energy because it's really dense footprint energy. And we like intensive agriculture because we grow more food on less land and that leaves more land for forests and grasslands and wetlands and things like that. In the previous episode that we did earlier today, actually, with Nathaniel Johnson of Grist, 
he was quoting uh, his upbringing with Joni Mitchell. Got to get ourselves back to the garden. You want to get us out of the garden, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, I'm all for gardening if you if you like doing it. I, I, I like it as a hobby. I don't like labor-intensive, land-intensive, low-productivity agriculture because, you know, first of all, most people don't actually want to do it for a living. It's a nice thing to do as a hobby. Most of, you know, certainly in rich countries, almost nobody grows their own food. And that's going to be the case all over the world uh, increasingly over the course of this century. Fewer and fewer people living in rural contexts, in agrarian contexts, because like there's better things to do and uh, more opportunities off the farm than on the farm. So that's where we're heading. So, uh, yeah, garden is a hobby. Uh, I don't want anyone who wants to do it to not be able to do it. But most people, you know, given a reasonable alternative, will choose not to spend most of their time doing hard agrarian labor. We want to dig into what is good about industrial ag or large-scale ag, but I think we should push it to a little bit later. I want to stay with this top-level kind of kind of question set. I recently read your book, uh, Breakthrough from the Death of Environmentalism to the Politics of Possibility. Did I get that subtitle right? You did. You did. I got it. Well, we, you know, uh, it's funny. Uh, we thought environmentalists, we, we thought it would be really well received when we wrote the book. So that was the subtitle on the hard cover. Ooh, that was hopeful. <laughs> the subtitle on the soft cover was uh, on the on the paperback. We changed it and it was why we can't leave saving the environment to environmentalists or why we can't leave saving the planet yeah, to even, environmentalists. Yeah, that's antagonistic <laughs> a little bit. Uh, really? what, what I like in, uh, in that book that, Nori, we tend to focus on, on carrots and not sticks and economic opportunity yeah. and growth. And we think that's a really good way to not alienate people. Whereas I think the scarcity dynamic that environmentalists tend to stress puts people in a zero sum sort of mentality. And it, it's sort of a conflict is almost baked into that uh, rhetorical style. So I like that your focus on what are ways that we can design policy to grow the economy and deal with the environment and climate change and uh, not turn everyone off. Is that yeah. Probably I mean, correct. there's, there's, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one is just that these sort of, you know, if it's a zero sum kind of choice between sort of human prosperity, modern living standards and saving the planet, quote unquote, I can tell you what's going to win and it ain't going to be saving the planet. You know, billions of people who, you know, we are environmentalism kind of is it really is a movement of the affluent. Uh, people will dispute that. But if you look at the origins of sort of what we call the environmental movement, it's really in rich developed economies after World War II. And these are the richest people who've ever lived on the planet and the most consumptive people who've ever lived on the planet. And so the whole discourse kind of gets focused on like people flying, you know, jet travel and, and how much meat do you eat? And meanwhile, like, there's several billion people who need to eat more protein of some sort in their diets. They need to have more mobility. They need to consume more energy. So if your kind of zero sum trade-off is between sort of economic development and economic growth and protecting and saving the environment, economic growth and development is going to kind of win out sort of pretty much every time. It seems like part of what the eco-modernist worldview is about is having your cake and eating it too. 
or this this word that comes up is like decoupling, right? Right. You're, you're, you're right, decoupling yeah. the environmental impact with the economic growth, and you're saying we can do it. Is that right. accurate or well, fair? That, yeah, it's true. I mean, I think there's a you know again there's been this tendency to see these two things as oppositional, and there's lots of reason to think that they're not actually. So you know when you think about decoupling, you know another word for decoupling is just is just long term productivity growth. Uh, land productivity, water productivity, uh, nitrogen productivity, energy productivity, you name it, carbon productivity. Well, it all happens to be that like the main driver of long-term economic growth is total factor productivity. Uh, it's productivity growth. It's the same thing. So when we really think about kind of what, you know, some people call green growth, you know, green growth is just, it's just productivity growth. Um, it's resource productivity growth primarily. And over the long term, it's also just when you use things more efficiently and you actually find useful ways to use waste products, things like that, that's just economic growth. It's not some sort of magic, you know, it's not like the cake's over here, but I eat it over here. It's like, that's just part of the cake. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> metaphor, but that's sort of the idea. I'm so curious about this decoupling as well, because I've read some stuff in, in degrowth economics. It tends to think that there's almost a one-to-one -one relationship between GDP growth and material throughput. And then I've also heard other people say, like, that is absolutely not true. I don't know what to do with that. I'll tell you what to do with it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, degrowth is just a troll. The whole idea is <laughs> just a gigantic troll uh, on, like, <laughs> human prosperity and progress and development. And so like this sort of, there's no such thing as absolute decoupling. So first of all, we actually have all sorts of examples of absolute decoupling all over the world. And the only way that the degrowthers can make this claim is that they look at things at a global level and they look at them over a period of time where like global population has tripled and we've moved billions of people out of like abject agrarian poverty, you know, to something that looks like a modern life. And they go, no, see, there's been no absolute decoupling on a bunch of uh, materials like sand and gravel that we cherry picked because the numbers, they fit our argument. And it's like, how could absolute decoupling conceivably happening during a time when just population is growing and not, you know, so the argument goes, well, that population is growing, you know, it's a rebound. Uh, this Jevons paradox, you know, all of this efficiency is just like creating more demand. And you're like, well, no, actually, mostly it's just been population growth. And most of that population growth is not as, as Malthus suggested, because people are having more children because fertility rates are rising. Actually, through the entire period fertility rates have been falling. It's just that like we have like basic good public health so people live longer and we have decent nutrition. But the thing that happens is as people kind of get through that transition through that sort of bottleneck where population is still growing really fast and incomes are rising really fast. You know, once you get through that bottleneck, you look at the growth rates, just just straight up economic growth rates in developed economies you know, most of them are struggling to sustain like 2% annual growth. And that's in economies that, you know, are increasingly knowledge and service, you know, economies where there's just demonstrably lower resource throughput associated with each additional dollar of economic output. So you put those things together over the long term with continuing improvements in resource productivity, 
And, you, you know, we've seen absolute decoupling across large economies, and you can't account for it by saying, well, it just all moved to China, like agricultural production in the United States didn't move to China. We've continued to actually increase agricultural production, but land use is flat, water use has fallen, fertilizer use is flat. Um, you know, Europe has seen absolute decoupling uh, in in uh, cropland. Um, there's less cropland. We've got forests returning all over the world because we need less land to grow food. And there we're talking about like the largest single impact, human impact on the environment. So, like I said, I think it's just a, I used to try to argue with these guys and I just stopped because I think the whole thing's just kind of a, a troll. It's a, it's a very kind of a slippery style of argument that, that sort of cherry picks and kind of manip, you know, when you even look at their supposedly empirical analyses, when you kind of get down to the bottom of it, it's fully kind of the entire sort of ostensible research designs are there to actually kind of make a point. It's not like, let's go kind of look at, say, the biggest environmental impacts and then look at whether we can find evidence of real absolute decoupling. It's like finding things that like like gravel where like, of course you couldn't, or for that matter, like energy consumption. Like how, how could energy consumption have absolutely decoupled during a period when like, we know you, you don't have to do a fancy analysis. You know that since 1950, global energy use has quintupled for good reasons. And energy isn't even the right metric. It's sort of a, it's carbon associated with the energy. So sorry to go off on the rant, but epic rant. Uh, if you're listening and you and you like degrowth economics or steady state economics, you'll get your turn. <laughs> we'll, we'll have you on. You can come say Ted's yeah, wrong. Fair hearing. <laughs> yeah, I like. That you rant, Ted, but I don't know if I agree with everything that you're saying. So let's, maybe let me. Let's, all right, let's hear. Let, let's spar a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, okay. So let's talk about agriculture, industrial agriculture. You know, let what's happening across the United States is farms are getting bigger and bigger. They're consolidating. The small yep. farms going out of business. You would say that's a good thing. That's fine because that's just we're becoming more efficient. But might that also actually make us more fragile to certain changes because the consolidation of farming is usually in a monoculture crop that's using more and more inputs to try to just eke out a little more yield, but not even looking at like the full picture when actually the human economy of bringing farmers or more people back to the land, although it may be less efficient from a unit economics perspective, could create greater efficiencies in the human capital, in the knowledge that's transferred from what they're doing, in the understanding maybe there are local disasters or weather events where someone might, now you have more people who can handle those things, as opposed to we've pushed ourselves into consolidation, just put robots on farms everywhere. I mean, is there is there a middle ground or I don't know. I mean, I just feel like we've been we've been, uh, you know, we've been consolidating agriculture in this country, um, you know, for 150 years. You know, people have been leaving agriculture as fast as they could for 150 years. You know, in 1930, during the in the midst of the Great Recession, there were seven, seven million farms in the United States. Now there's two million. So. This isn't a new phenomenon. It's not actually uh, because of agri, you know, a, a global, you know, or or corporate agribusiness conspiracy. It's because people actually have better thing, you know, like give people something better to do than farm. And most people are going to decide not to farm. 
you know, so, you know, the sort of kind of traditional enviro kind of left narrative here, which sort of combines kind of uh, elite power conspiracy with sort of agrarian romanticism is just its enclosure writ large, right? It's the story of like the enclosure of the English countryside that, you know, everywhere. But actually, you know, mostly it's just agglomeration. It's not enclosure. It's people kind of leaving the farm because there's better things to do someplace else because there's better lives to be had. Like you look at declining fertility rates. Think about things environmentalists like cities, declining fertility rates, uh, women's empowerment. Every one of those things actually associated with people leaving the farm, not staying on the farm. So there's this sort of some counterfactual fabulous world where like everyone has like 1.9 children and a PhD and they're still working on their small farms. But I'm sorry, that's just a utopian fantasy. Doesn't. (laughs) That does, it doesn't work like that in this world. We're all caught, Christoph and I especially, in this dialectic between, you know, love the work of Wendell Berry. I, I find it uh, poetic and, and beautiful in lots of ways, but also I love markets. I like modernity. I think that's the way to go. So we just have these fantasies of being gentleman farmer, but we're, we're just posers, I think, Christoph. I don't know. <laughs> like, we, not everyone should aspire to that, though. I think that would be a mistake. And the broader point, I think, I think is well taken. You gotta have some of that scale. Like I, I, I'd, I'd love to have a cow in my. You know, look, I, I, I live in the Berkeley Hills, and like, I wake up every morning to like people's backyard chickens, and they, you know, they think that they're like changing agriculture. But the truth is, like, when the chickens die, they go down to Whole Foods and they buy and they buy. You know, forget the sort of supposed like label. It's organic or pasture, whatever, those, those eggs or those chickens are being raised on big, you know, even organic is it's big agriculture. It's big farms. That's, that's what allows when your chickens get eaten by the fox that like, cause you're actually too crappy. Uh, uh, you know, you're not handy enough to actually like build the coop so that the predator stays out and like a weasel or something gets into your chicken coop and kills all the chickens. You know what you do? You go to Whole Foods and you buy it from some huge farm that's automated, that's routinized, that's highly capitalized, and they know what they're doing. And this is actually what resilience looks like. It's not everybody with chickens in their backyard. It's the fact that there's a Whole Foods with eggs that came from 400 miles away so that like when when shit goes sideways, you know, where you are, you can still go get your eggs and your milk and your flour and all the other things you want to eat. That's what resilience looks like to me. Man, I'm surprised the residents of Berkeley haven't run you out of town. Well, you know, they made me move across the line. I live in this weird little part of the Berkeley Hills. It's not technically Berkeley, but it really is. But, you know, because it's not Berkeley, they can't throw me out. (laughs) I lived in Berkeley for like 17 years, but no, I lived for like 25 actually, but. So help us out a little bit, Ted. You've painted eco-modernism in a certain light, and you've also talked about environmentalists writ large or other schools of thought. But where does it all fit? How might you contrast environmentalism to eco-modernism to other forms of the environment movement? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about a couple. We've talked about sort of the degrowth. We've talked about the kind of whatever the sort of romantic agrarian. There's an older conservation tradition, obviously. There's a, you know, a lot of what we would consider sort of modern environmental 
ideology, institutions, consciousness really kind of is born of kind of the new left in the early 60s. And, and you know, I think that's sort of an interesting sort of taking off point because you kind of go like, well, when is this happening, you know? And it's happening like literally this is the first generation to have ever come of age amidst affluence, right? This is the post-war. These are the boomers. This is the post-war generation kind of raised in the sort of modernity and monotony of the 1950s. And so it's on one level, it's sort of not surprising that this is the generation that actually kind of sort of loses track of the basic kind of material preconditions for their affluence, for their self-actualized lives, for the fact that they don't have to get up every morning and haul water or, you know, literally try to like hand wring dry clothing or to go out and like have to be out like, you know, trying to do whatever it is you do to a heifer at five in the morning. Like, not a farm boy. It doesn't. Yeah, not. A, I did not. I did not grow up on the farm. I'm, I. I make no bones about it. Um, I like to say that um, people always like. Have you ever talked to a farmer? You should go talk to a farmer. And this is like what I love about that little kind of insult is that it's like the insult that people use to basically like when someone like makes a point that they don't like or they can't refute. It does, and it doesn't matter. It's like ideologically neutral, right? Like the agribusiness people say it to people they disagree with. Like the the regenerative ag people say it to people, the organic people. Anyone you disagree with, and you're like, I'm done done arguing with you. You say you should just go talk to a farmer, as if that's sort of like you can't say anything about agriculture unless you've talked to a farmer. And anyone who disagrees with you has obviously never talked to a farmer. So no, I did not grow up on the farm. Did I, did I derail you in the way that you, you did? I was making some other point, Man, but what was it? I can't we can remember what it, it was. Well, we could not. Um, Whatever you do up with the heifer, oh, the 50s being Eisenhower Oh, yeah, years, yeah, yeah. Or... Anyway, so it's like, yeah, it's not surprising that like, you know, in this moment of sort of like really kind of almost unprecedented security and affluence, you know, like unprecedented in kind of almost the entirety of human history, you know, this this whole generation kind of decides that somehow it's all you know, it, it can't last, right? This is sort of really the kind of beginning of sort of apocalyptic environmentalism. And it comes from the left because, of course, the left, you know, up until this point, you know, the old Marxist left, it's sort of dialectical materialism. You know, it's... it's They like things big. Too. Well, they like things big. You know, it was very much focused on kind of production. And, you know, the belief was that, you know, the argument, the Marxists believed that capitalism would immiserate the poor. And then you get to like you know, 1964, and it's like the American and, and increasingly the European working classes are like the wealthiest, most prosperous working classes that have like ever existed by a lot. So, of course, it's at this moment that the left really sort of shifts its critique of capitalism and environmental. So now capitalism isn't going to immiserate the poor materially, but it's going to make them sick and it's going to poison us and it's going to result in the sort of collapse of civilization because we're going to eat our seed corn and, and po you know, like, uh, you know, destroy the biocapacity of the planet and all of that. And that's not to say that pollution and environment, but these kind of apocalyptic narratives kind of gain popular purchase at this very particular time and coming from a very particular kind of political tradition that is sort of you have to situate 
in this kind of remarkable period of kind of abundance and prosperity that kind of like no one uh, that mass populations have never experienced prior to, you know, 1954, uh, really. So, so, I mean, clearly you care about the climate issue and you, yeah. you get the climate math. There's too much carbon in the atmosphere. Right. We need to decarbonize yeah. as quickly as possible. We need to draw the carbon back out if we want to avoid catastrophic climate change. No quibbles there. I think we're definitely... On I might the... quibble with that last part. You don't want to draw carbon back I'm out. happy to do it. Okay. I mean, I guess I, I feel like uh, a big part of what we do here at Breakthrough and have always done, and, and it's actually different than even some, you know, a lot of eco-modernists, is just to make a non-apocalyptic case for climate mitigation. That, like, the future can be better or worse and probably you know, all else equal, lower emissions and lower temperature increase will be better than more, higher. There's just higher climate risk, more disruption, you know, probably greatly simplified ecosystems that might not, you know, kind of undermine our ability to thrive materially. But, you know, I would like to kind of preserve biodiversity all across the planet just for kind of, I can't even exactly give you a good reason why other than I think we should. I think it's beautiful. I think it's, um, you know, kind of a part of our sort of evolutionary, our sort of deep evolutionary experience. Mm -hmm. So your point is, yes, I care about this stuff, but both on, on sort of technical grounds, but also in terms of kind of like efficacy, I just don't think that we actually have ever gotten hardly anywhere on any of this stuff by threatening people with apocalypse. You've been around long enough. Where have you seen climate policies that are trying to get things right from an atmospheric carbon perspective? Where have you seen them succeed or fail? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of more, and I think I've become more and more this way the longer I've looked at this stuff, that like most of the progress we make kind of climate benefits come along for the ride. So you can find just very little evidence that any sort of explicit climate policy has much sort of changed the trajectory of emissions just about anywhere. On the other hand, we can kind of find better cases, at least, where sort of policies that were often motivated for other reasons brought climate benefits. Obviously, like in recent years, especially clean energy um, sort of investment and policies to support solar and wind, um, particularly, you know, have... Those are motivated in part by climate concerns, but I think they're just more motivated by the idea that we should just kind of have sort of continuing innovation towards better energy technologies. If you look at kind of the public support for that stuff, it's not like we have to do this because the world is going to end. It's just kind of like we like clean energy. It's better than dirty energy. And we don't like carbon prices or carbon taxes, but we're happy to subsidize it. <laughs> So, you know, I and, and I think that's an interesting example. Or you look at like the coal to gas transition we've seen in the U.S., you know, which was motivated by like actually decades uh, or driven by decades of federal policy uh, that no one paid much attention to. Uh, it was really kind of pretty sub rosa stuff, but it's had big climate benefits. There's people who contest it. I don't think it's a strong case for a bunch of the claims that are made that like gas is as bad as coal. It's kind of, it's basically nonsense, but you know, obviously it's not going to get you at a zero by 2050 or 1.5 or even 2C of warming. Um, but then I don't think any of this stuff is, I focus very much on like, uh, you know, 
let's kind of pick the good and not hold out for the perfect. And a lot of that good is going to happen for other reasons. It's clean air. You know, we just published a thing just demonstrating that, you know, the economic uh, benefits just from the public health benefits of like the energy transition, uh, at least in the sort of short and probably medium term, actually outweigh the climate benefits. Um, people not dying as, as prematurely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all of the kind of economic costs, uh, both public and private, that come with that. And the truth is that like, you know, and it's still the case that like actually like, you know, we talk about, you know, maybe the public concern and willingness to do something about climate change is finally tipping and whatever. But, but you know, you go back, I mean, I was a pollster before I did this and like, like you could any poll you ever you did, like people still care way more about clean air and water than they do about climate change. So, you know, as a sort of political, basic political proposition, like I'd much rather just bring the climate stuff along for the ride and kind of do the thing that delivers just much more immediate benefits for people now. Yeah, you mentioned this in, in your book, Breakthrough, which, by the way, it aged very well. It, uh, it was written... Which, which administration was it? Was it, was it, uh, it was the end of the Bush, Bush, two? And Bush two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was published in 2007. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the themes have just carried on seemingly. And you have a great section in there about why not to threaten people with apocalypse. And I think it's, it sort of inspires some of the worst qualities of humans. They'll start denying it, that it actually is a problem. They won't take it nearly as seriously. They start worrying about like protecting what they already have and not being as generous as they might otherwise be. And so your proposal that I saw, and this is something that Ramez Nam, who's a Nori advisor and a, a friend of ours, he's been stressing the need for Apollo style or like Marshall Plan style, like make clean energy so cheap that it just can compete on it for its own sake and everything else will sort of go along for the ride. Is that still broadly how you think about it as a jobs and yeah. like technology? Yeah, abs absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, if I were going to kind of sort of, uh, well, I have kind of chastised myself uh, for my earlier younger self for oh. some things I said. I want to hear some of that. Too. Um, yeah. And, you know, one of them, you know, frankly, I think we sort of sold a lot of this, uh, you know, as a bit of a bill of goods. You know, we promised that we there was going to be this kind of clean energy industrial policy that was going to put like millions of people back to work, like making solar panels and wind turbines. And and frankly, that didn't happen. And frankly, it could never have happened um, mm. because like if you really understand the kind of the way that that energy works in modern economies. I mean, the benefits of like cheap, clean energy just ramify across the entire energy. So, so, so those economic benefits were never going to like be concentrated in like solar manufacturing. I mean, if you look at like natural gas, you know, the shale gas revolution, you know, created a fair number of jobs in like the oil and gas sector, but it created way, way more jobs just across the entire economy because energy and and you know both uh natural gas as an input to manufacturing and things just like it that. being cheaper because it's more it's available cheaper it's more yeah. available like like we actually had a whole lot of energy intensive industries uh come back to the u.s because of the cheap because there was just cheap gas available refining chemicals stuff like that so to your point i think the broader that actually kind of makes the broader point which i think is still 100% correct, which is that we're going to deal with climate change by making clean energy cheap, just full stop. And it doesn't necessarily have to be cheaper than the carbon-based alternatives, but it needs to be pretty darn close so that like, you know, it's not that you can do all this without some sort of regulatory or pricing or other set of policies, but the sort of 
economic and political lift necessary for those policies has to be modest. You got to get close. And then whether it's a, a, a low carbon tax or it's a you know, clean energy standard or something else, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, the, the kinds of kind of you look at these various analyses on like, you know, we have this huge debate around like what's the right like social discount rate in somebody's model for like whether we should have a we should be starting with like a $30 price on carbon or a $200 per ton price on carbon. And it's like, you know what, guys, like we can't even like even in the best of circumstances, we can't sustain like $8 a ton. So like like this is just a this is just a completely academic argument. And practically, when you look at and understand how real political economies function, and that doesn't just mean corporate power, it just means that like all sorts of people's sort of short term economic interests are often quite well aligned with like the fossil fuel industry is that, you know, you got to figure out how you do this with sort of fairly modest pricing and regulatory policies. And that means you have to make clean energy and low carbon technology close to, if not cheaper than the incumbent technology. Why hasn't that happened with nuclear energy? Is it a failure of policy? Is it market driven? It's probably it's, both, right? It's yeah. a little bit of both. I mean, it's policy, it's institutions, and it's technology kind of all together. I think we kind of, you know, one of the things, one of the problems with these kind of climate policy and environmental policy debates is that there's this idea that that kind of like technology's over here and like policies over here. And really, like, different technologies work in different sort of socio-institutional technological contexts. So, you know, frankly, even today, you know, if we were like, let's just go be France or even China or Korea and just like we're going to have a sort of pretty top-down centralized economy. We're going to have like a state-owned enterprise that's going to like build and operate the nuclear plants and we're going to have a nationalized power sector and we're going to finance it with long-term low interest rate public finance, nuclear would still be the cheapest way to fully decarbonize the energy sector based on like the technologies we have now, even though like the first five or 10 plants you built would be really, really expensive, but they last for 80 years. Um, I don't think this guy saw Chernobyl, Christoph. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I boycotted it. <laughs> you boycotted um, it? It's, uh, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's really good. But yeah. I'm sure like a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like, dude, did you see Chernobyl? Um, <laughs> it comes up every podcast that nuclear comes up on. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're uh, progressively inclined and you're writing. Your audience seems to be other progressives saying, yeah. hey, this is something that you should take seriously. Right. So well, why so, should they? Yeah, I mean, my point is like, so we can get into this endless debate about Chernobyl. I mean, the science is actually really clear that like it didn't kill a million people. You know, it's like four to nine thousand ultimately premature deaths over the entire lifetime of the exposed population from thyroid cancers. That's basically it besides like the like 50 guys who like, that's the one part of the movie that were the series that was right. Like they literally had these guys, they didn't even have like radiation suits in their like 
shoveling, you know, things throwing, are yeah. throwing like parts of the reactor core back into the hole. You know, I mean, it was, yeah, that, you know, and that that's Soviet. Like lots of other things went really, really badly under that system, too. It wasn't just nuclear energy. But, you know, and I, I would say that, like, you know, my view, I just said, like, it would still be like even the technologies we have, if you were just like, let's fully decarbonize really, really fast. Let's just do it. Like, forget markets, forget all of that. We don't have time for that. You know, we actually have to stop trying to, like, bribe private actors to sort of do the right thing for the climate. It's like an asteroid. We have 12 years then then just nationalize the whole thing and build the plants. And like, yeah, we might even have a meltdown or two and it would be better than catastrophic <laughs> climate change. I mean, if that's like what you think about climate change and then you're like, nope, we can't do that because Fukushima, you know, which killed nobody and will kill nobody, then I'm sorry, you know, that's not a particularly convincing answer to me. Now, I am of the view that it's not like an asteroid. It's like diabetes, as I argued recently. We're not going to rapidly decarbonize the global economy. We're going to slowly decarbonize the global economy. And most places like the United States, Europe, increasing places around the world, we're not going to we're just not willing to like lend authority to anybody to tell us like what to do or like to nationalize energy, you know, big sectors of our economy. So it's going to be this kind of kludgy sort of market, sort of regulation you know, people talking about degrowth and we need to end capitalism and then getting on a plane and flying halfway around the world to go to the next conference where they're going to say that, like, that's actually the world we live in. And I think in that world, these big, basically public works projects, we're just not going to do it. We just don't, we won't actually allow enough social authority, you know, invest centralized institutions with enough power to do that. So in that future, which I think is the future we're heading to, you know, I think that you need kind of pretty radically different nuclear technologies that look more like sort of smaller scale solar, wind. You know, we're going to, you know, figure out how to kind of bolt carbon capture things onto existing power plants in some places. It's going to be a, like I said, it's going to be this really kind of kludgy, slow muddle to decarbonization. And in that future, like we need like Gen 4 nuclear plants that are like, you know, three megawatts or 50 megawatts and not a gigawatt. Like if nuclear is going to have a future, that's what it's going to look like. And those technologies, they'll be manufactured. We'll get really I don't even know if they'll be cheaper over like the full 80 year lifetime of a nuclear plant that's financed with public money. But we're not going to do that. And they'll be a lot cheaper than trying to build big nuclear plants in the sort of socioeconomic and political economies that we're going to have. So that's a tough one, especially so because you document this quite well in the empty radicalism of the climate apocalypse, which is if you think that climate change is an impending apocalypse and there's something about like a decade left to act or we're really screwed, I would think they would be much more radical and much more willing to entertain how many nuclear meltdowns is it worth to avoid climate change? Like, I want to be, I want to be digging into that calculus. Yeah, like, right, right. Is it three? Is it a hundred? Like how bad do you think climate change is? Because at some point it should be worth it to do this, but I don't see a lot of that, those serious trade-offs being discussed or even being entertained. Ted, I, I like your focus on the numbers and details, even though sometimes you push against things that I believe and it hurts my feelings. 
Well, uh, which I'm trying to. It's not. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. No. I like. I really like people. He just wants to help you get a breakthrough, Ross. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. This is it's tough love, man. No, no, it's it's, it's true, and I try not to be uh, emotionally invested in any of these things either. So you could talk me out of, or I try to be able to be talked out of any position I hold, because if you don't do that, you're just sort of already trapped, and you're in, on the losing side. So thanks like, for and uh, and I'll tell you what you know like I just to be like call bullshit on myself like for all my like all of this organic regenerative it's all bullshit I still can't quite help myself like going down to my nice like Monterey Market in Berkeley or my farmers market and buying that shit and and thinking it be <laughs> it's better even when like like I'm not even sure you know like sometimes yeah like you know if you like you, you know like when you pet the cows to death. Man, man, they probably do taste kind of better, but like, like I can't, like, I can't quite, I can't, it, it's hard for me even to sort of separate my kind of social class and all of the kind of social capital and cultural capital that's tied up in my consumption from all the things that I actually know about sort of environment, you know, the numbers and the math and the, and environmental issues. So. so you're just a bullshitter. I'm kind of a bullshitter like everybody else. <laughs> like, you know, environmentalism is really good for one thing and that's for just the kind of production of bullshit and discourse. Like that's really like, like it's a whole, like it's a cottage industry. I can't, I can't name th this episode that, but yeah. maybe I should. Ted, we, we have a tradition that we, we've done for a long time and we're trying to make a catch on more. Given that you have such strong feelings that I'm sure our audience, some of you may even be angry right now. Some of you may feel attacked. So, so Ted, in order to turn the scales back a bit, who do you think is your best critic? Who's the, like the smartest person that you're like, damn it, they got a point. So there's, I, there's people who I like really, really like, even though I like really disagree with them. So like I put like Bill McKibben in that, you know, like I, and I would like, like kind of Bill, I wouldn't say he was a, exactly a champion of death and of environmentalism, but Bill was like one of the first like really important environmental sort of people who, you know, thought leaders who was like, hey, we got to pay attention to this. This is important. And so like, like I kind of, I criticize Bill a lot, a bunch of the stuff he's done over the last decade or so kind of, I find increasingly problematic intellectually, but I, I really love Bill. I, I really, you know, I just think he's a kind of one of the loveliest people I've ever met. Another example, like David Wallace Wells, like, you know, I, his book is, is beautiful, but if you don't think that an apocalypse is nigh, yeah. it's not going to do much. For and you. I have like, a, I've had a great kind of email correspondence with David for, for quite a while now, just kind of like, like quite respectfully kind of arguing uh, with him. And, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, kind of, I feel like he has a point, you know, like, like there's a key thing in there, which is that they're just sort of. There are catastrophic risks tied up with this stuff that like no one can actually quantify. And I think David sometimes kind of goes sort of, you know, too far in kind of taking these what are really worst case scenarios and suggesting that this is like our future if we don't do something, you know, if we don't take A lot action. of people were mad about this too. I saw that was a lot of takes. Uh, we're mad about? about? About just sort of stressing this imminency and like these are almost guaranteed to happen. Or right. It wasn't saying this is on the, like if you run the probabilities out, this is... A point three or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, how do you deal? And, you know, I think there's a real question about how to deal with sort of low probability, but kind of catastrophic, if not existential threats. So, I, you know, I really like David and I respect him, even though I disagree with sort of how he's deployed some of this stuff. 
And I was going to give, there's one other example of, I, I just more generally as a, outside of a person, like, you know, I think, I think if the degrowthers were more honest, they would have a stronger kachik, which is that like, I can show you eight different ways that like, you know, absolute decoupling in fact has happened and that, you know, it's not very difficult to see how, you know, over the long term, all these trends that right now are what we call relative decoupling will become absolute decoupling. Just you look at the population trajectories, you look at slowing growth rates as economies get richer. It's not that far, but it ain't happening soon. And so I think the more kind of serious critique of like eco-modernism and decoupling is, you know, in the future, we're all dead, as as uh, John Maynard Keynes famously said. And like, if you have a kind of particularly catastrophic view of climate risk, if you think the emergency is right here, well, then like this long term, slow decoupling of human well-being, material well-being from ecological impacts doesn't do us much good because like everything's going to fall apart and collapse long before we get there. And like, I don't actually kind of have that I don't think it actually is going to work that way, but I think that is a very, very fair critique. If you are much more worried about catastrophic impacts, then like, why are you arguing about whether absolute decoupling can ever happen versus just like there's these planetary boundaries and we've already crossed them and we're about to cross them. And once we cross them, the end is nigh, then like the eco-modernist vision of sort of absolute decoupling with a prosperous population of eight or nine billion people doesn't much matter because we're never going to get there. So, uh, you know, I think there's lots of kind of fair critiques of that. But George Mambiat's. Well, I can't remember which which critique was it. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's in The Guardian, of course, but what is it? I mean, it basically came out a couple days after the release of the eco-modernist oh, yeah. manifesto. This was the thing where he says, like, this is not true, you know, small farms are... Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean, we actually wrote a response to that. You know, and I've met George and, and he's a very smart guy. You know, he's honestly very ideological. So, you know, George goes and his entire argument is based on this evidence that really, really small farms in poor countries have higher, you know, and really it's kind of marginally higher yields than somewhat larger, really small farms. And that's because, like, basically they have free labor, like, like in these sort of really subsistence, very small farms, like women and children are basically chattel and they're free labor. And because you can sort of put more labor into the agricultural sort of system, you get a higher yield than like when you move to like a slightly larger farm where you're much more in a kind of cash economy and you have to pay for your labor and half the labor has gone to the city because like they can live a better life and you actually get a somewhat lower yield. Now, the reality is, you know, when you go from like a two acre farm to a hundred acre farm, the yields are much higher. So this is actually, you know, again, it's a it's a little bit of a kind of cherry picked claim that is sort of dependent on talking about only basically sort of that very immediate short term move, really true absolute subsistence where like you have lots of children and they don't go to school. They like work on the farm and that's how you get your somewhat higher yield than like when you go to like a five acre farm and most of the women and children have moved to the city or are in school. That's actually pretty much the entirety 
of his critique. Do you think we can bait George Mambiat and uh, David Wallace Wells onto the show? We're coming for you guys. I think so. You get ready. Gotta go. Gotta yeah, Bill go McKibben the on. Bill McKibben precedes you by, I think, three or four episodes. Yeah, so All right. Bill yeah. came on, and he was he was a very gracious, wonderful episode, too. We should definitely link that in the show notes. I was a little bit surprised by what he had to say. It showed that he was more malleable than you might really? have painted him. What did, he, what did he say? Well, he said people... I'll have to go listen to the podcast, yeah. obviously. Right. Give me oh. the Reader's Digest. I'm, 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 I'm kind of old, so I don't, I don't really get the podcast thing. I'm like, when do you guys listen to all these podcasts? Yeah, you know you can actually listen on cars. 2X, so it's just like, we'll tell them like a bunch of chipmunks. How do you do it, though, like where it's like, I think it must be that like, like, you know, I'm like Gen X, and I think once you get kind of more kind of late X to millennial, like everybody is so much better that, at multitask. I see, I'll walk around my office, my staff, they have their ear pods in, and they're like, Listening to a podcast and tweeting and like running like R on like a data set and writing a <laughs> blog post all at the same time. And I'm just like, boy, I cannot do that. Well, who knows if they're any good at it. Anyway, so, so the well, short so, version. So the short version, I mean, Reader's Digest you, you, version. you know what Bill's about. Yeah. He's, he's going after the systems and institutions that are responsible for dumping carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or fossil based carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And he wants to see fossil fuel executives in prison because he thinks that they've lied and misled us. And I can't say I entirely disagree with him. But what was interesting, he came to terms that he would say they would not need to go to prison if they actually were willing to pay more than the externality of what they previously had dumped into the atmosphere. So go to prison unless you support a carbon tax. <laughs> unless, not, not only unless you support a carbon tax, unless you pay to remove the excess carbon that you've already added. Uh, uh. And then you're good. You're off the hook. And I actually found that to be a very gracious and important compromise. And in a day and age where it's just there's so many echo chambers and angry people on the internet, that when you can find that common ground, it, it gives me just a little bit of hope that we can get this right. Let me tell you, in this future where we sort of start sending people to prison for their like <laughs> political beliefs, I'm really, really concerned that it is not going to be the fossil fuel executives that are going to get locked away, I think it's going to be us. Yeah, I had flashes of the French Revolution in there. <laughs> you were yeah. saying the it's, kangaroo court. It's going to be like... <laughs> I don't know that I, I love it. Avocado politics. Have you heard that term? Oh, uh, Enlighten us. I have not. Yeah, so uh, it was coined by a friend of mine, uh, Nils Gilman. He, we did a panel on sort of populism in the environment. And Nils goes like, be careful what you wish for. When like the right wing really starts to kind of get apocalyptic about climate change... It's not going to be a green new deal we're going to get. We're going to get like just really kind of pretty green radical. Mussolini. Restrict, yeah, we're going to get restrictive immigration. We're going to get – it's going to be very ugly. It's going to be – to your earlier point, it's going to be very zero sum. So this is obviously kind of part of my concern about sort of these apocalyptic narratives is that they do not – this idea that like everyone's going to freak out about climate change and we're going to have a climate emergency – and it's going to be like a Green New Deal, happy, everyone gets to work together, international coordination of carbon policy. No, it's going to be like concentration camps and walls and resource wars. So this is really like the thing that I'm like, guys, like this like happy progressive future that comes when everyone signs up. No, it's like it's like you think they're, you're going to be like sending the fossil fuel executives to jail. But no, actually, it's going to be like you and your civil liberties that, you know, are getting marched away. So 
to read back what I'm hearing you say is we should not be afraid of apocalyptic climate change. We should be afraid of the apocalypse that comes with humanity's apocalyptic fascist well, I'm much more afraid of climate change of the, in some way. Uh, of the apocalyptic response to climate change mm-hmm. than I am apocalyptic consequences of climate change. Now, I will grant you that it, you can't necessarily pull those things apart, right? Like, you know, it might not take too many like really bad hurricanes and droughts and floods to kind of get like Trump to be like, I've changed my mind. I believe in climate change and we're going to deport all of those illegal immigrants, but maybe not to this earth. You know, like (laughs) you could just see pretty horrible things happening. We've been trying to do uh, an episode about this for a while with a national security expert because the the things that we get hung up on the most are not, oh, New York might go underwater. I'm like, they'll build physical infrastructure. They will deal with it. I'm more worried about what happens when, yeah, there's shortages or, yeah, there's a massive uh, food shortage and, and famine in some place and they're all flooding into the right. country. Mass and, migrations. Yeah. And, and then there's there's a, like a populist reaction against that. Yeah. That's, quite, that's what scares me quite a lot more so than than just like the polar bears yeah i mean i think there's a flip side to it also uh, i've been wanting at some point i want to do this um to do kind of like a scenario visioning exercise where it's kind of like what would it look like for human societies to adapt really well to like four degrees of warming and i think what would be really interesting is i think when you think that through like it actually undermines a lot of the kind of the politics of a lot of the adaptationist arguments. In other words, like the things that would be required to like adapt well would be kind of like open borders or, you know, allowing people to migrate across borders, like super integrated sort of institutions and trade and things like that. And like a lot of the people who are like, no, 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 we're human societies are great at adapting. We're going to adapt really well to this are folks who like oppose all of that stuff who are like, you know, no, like, we don't want open immigration and we don't want globally traded, you know, true free trade. We don't want any of that. So I think it's interesting, like when you really think about, you know, how you adapt well, it's like, yeah, you know, everyone's kind of societies all over the world are like prosperous enough that like, you know, everybody has air conditioning and like when people need to kind of leave because the place that they live is is sort of like you can't grow food there anymore they can go you know to a different country and live in that country you know i i think that that's a plausible you know you look at the united states and you know like certainly like a third of the country over about 50 years moved from like the northeast to the southwest you know in search of a better climate among other (laughs) things and more economic opportunity and that was possible because you know, it was within national borders. And like, I could see that being a good way to adapt to climate change if people can move across borders, but if they can't. That's a lot of the the libertarians I know who are concerned about climate change. They just tend to be very distrustful of the people who do support climate solutions. Like they're like these environmentalists, like have never met a policy or a tax or regulation that they haven't liked, even right. when they don't work. So I just, I just don't have no credibility that this is going to happen in the way that they think it's going to. But as long as goods and people can cross borders, I trust that a lot. And I think we'll be okay for that reason. And you can dispute whether or not, uh, you know, if the magnitude of the change is extremely great, maybe we we won't be able to adapt as quickly as they think, but maybe not. But that's at least the case. And I think people don't put enough trust in these decentralized processes driving uh, movement. And that can get a lot of of the way there. Let's put it back Mm -hmm. to Ted. So... 
you've laid some wonderful bait. Maybe this represents <laughs> your views and not those of the Breakthrough Institute. Such maybe a provocateur. It, maybe it does. But if our listeners are interested and want to get more involved with your work, what can they do? Well, uh, you know, you can check us up out at thebreakthrough.com. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletters. You can ask to come to one of our events. Uh, they're, they're generally invitation only, but we actually kind of... We pay a lot of attention to people who kind of want to be engaged with us. Um, How do we do? Do we do okay? You guys did great. <laughs> this is an audition. Yeah, yeah. You guys can come. You guys, you guys nice. are in. You guys are in the. You're in the. You're, you're not part of the in eco modernist crowd. Yeah. Well, you know? don't don't put us in any camp because we're weird thinkers that just put ourselves in all the camps. Well, that's what we like. Everybody. That, that that's 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 the kind of that's why we're having such a good conversation, right? Yeah, um, I think so. So yeah, you should come. Uh, you guys should come to the Breakthrough Dialogue sometime. That'll be do fun. a podcast there. Cool. Yeah, we'd love to. If people wanted to follow your work and keep up with what you're doing, uh, how should yeah, they do it? So you can follow us on, obviously, you know, we do the Twitter like everybody else. Mm-hmm. You can follow us on you Twitter. Uh, yeah, I'm just Ted Nord, at Ted Nordhouse. You can follow at Alex Trembath, at Z Kospather, uh, or just the at the BTI account. You can sign up. We have a, a weekly kind of newsletter, um, you know, email kind of update thing that goes out. I guess that's how you kind of follow people these days. We mm-hmm. have an Instagram account. It has like 300 followers. So uh, that's like ours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently you're supposed to do that these days. Um, you can listen to the break. We have our own podcast, Breakthrough Dialogues. Um, so you can sign up. You can listen to our podcast, uh, which uh, my colleague Alex Trembath uh, hosts definitely um, we had some great we had some really fun folks charles mann um who he, he's on my wish list david roberts oh. we had a like a, he's in seattle hasn't come on yet we gotta that's get crazy. him <laughs> that's crazy well you know i dave, dave dave and i have a sort of have had a fairly adversation adversarial relationship uh for a long time but he and alex managed to sort of make up oh um, that's nice yeah there was a more colorful version of that uh, oh. that I won't okay. not gonna put on your co- podcast. Say we're already gonna have to have an explicit tag on this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> excellent. More swearing Excellent. Than X-rated. Usual. X-rated. <laughs> R-rated. R-rated. Okay. <laughs> Let's not get it to we X-rated. Kept it. We kept it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, yeah. Ted. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. You yeah. guys are good. You guys do do good podcast. You oh, know? oh like thank good, you. It's 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 good chatter, but not too much. Oh, we didn't we didn't ruin it like the you other one you told. Like the other one I was telling you guys about. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Uh, and if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher. Tell your friends. Help get the conversation out there. If you liked any of the things that Ted does not, <laughs> well, we try to be fair, and we'll we'll have those people on too, and then they can make their cases. So if you if you know of anyone who would be a good balance that's a big part of what we try to do here so feel free to reach out to podcast at nori.com and you can send us uh, nasty letters there too if we didn't if we didn't satisfy you in that correct kind of way <laughs> so thank you so much for listening thank you